drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Across this expanse of land, our great range of landscapes and environs play host to the buildings in which we live and work and learn, worship and play. Self-professed architecture nerd Tim Ross is about to begin Series 2 of Designing a Legacy. He explores examples of Australia's built environment, both historical and contemporary, and how they inform our sense of culture and community. Tim Ross, g'day. It's very grown up, this radio, Andy, it's isn't very, it? It's very grown up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of, one of the people that you meet in this series is called Andy. He's an eccentric denizen of Byron Bay. He really sums up the importance of good lasting design of our spaces. Take a listen. My view is that the best protection for the future and to, con to make sure that you maintain a trajectory is to do a job that's so spectacularly good that when people 100 years from now come along and say, well, let's put a golf course here, everybody says, don't you dare. This thing is important. Now contrast that mm. with demountable classrooms, urban sprawl, toll roads, uh, big box retailer strip malls. Do we fully understand design in this country, do you think? Gosh, it's a pretty good question. Um, do we understand it? Uh, do we appreciate it? Do we appreciate it? it? Uh, no, we don't. At times we do. We appreciate it in different ways. I think there's a broad interest in design, but I don't think everyone really gets how it can change your life or why that it's really significant that we we care more about it. So, so sell it to me. What does it feel like to walk into an intentional or architectural space and how is it different to any other space? Well, I think most of us sort of understand it without being able to put it into some sort of you know, super architecture speak, but it, a great piece of architecture I always think should affect you in the same way as a great piece of music or a piece of literature or a great song. Uh, I was at the Opera House the other day and I was, every time I go in there, it's because, and, and I think many people can understand that feeling from those great civic spaces. But in the series, we, we, one of the buildings we visit is this really small surf lifesaving club in, in Bishno in Tasmania. And it was made for $20,000. They were going to have a concrete block thing. And one of the local architects who's a member of the club says, you know what, don't do that. I could design you something for nothing. And so they end up making this box and it's just made from plastic panels and it's timber and it looks like a crab pot and it lights up at night. And it's absolutely beautiful and it becomes a beacon for the community. So it's cheap and cheerful and it's just a place for them to put their, their boats and, and bits and pieces. But 
because everyone it's won architecture awards and everyone loves it and it's there's something special about it it brings everyone together so in terms of how it makes you feel well you know you sometimes you can't put your finger on it but you know that it works and i think sometimes that's the that that's the moment but you can have the best spaces in the world i think but unless you put people in them they don't make sense and so the best architecture in the world with horrible people and it's never going to be pleasant, is it? Mm. I suppose that comes down to identity. Like you were saying, walk into the Opera House, you feel like you're Australian. Walk into the Bichonneau Surf Life-Saving Crab Pot, you feel like a local there. There's a sense of who, who who has ownership of it. Yeah, and I loved that there's a kid and he's like 14 or 15 or something and he goes, we just hang out here with my mates and we just – and he swims every morning with his dad and and that's what brings them together and like this group of you know really different people who get together every morning and they swim together and there was a guy there around a local chinese restaurant and he for years he just sort of watched them and then then he came and then he sort of started swimming by himself and then it took him like 6 months to actually start getting changed where they got changed and having a shower with them. And then he finally took the next step to say, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to swim with you because he was so fascinated by this idea of people swimming together and people swim all the time in winter. It's madness, but I understand it. But there was something about this building as the sort of the home ground as a catalyst for them to do them or, or it's the central place that makes them all feel that they can hang out there and sometimes it's just about the shower, not the architecture, but they didn't do it before they had that building there. This is a perfect lead-in to talk about the idea of community living, you know, which feels pretty pertinent right now given the housing crisis. You show several examples of the kind of cooperative housing uh, methods that were affordable and also nurture that sense of community. If these models exist, why aren't we using them more broadly, do you think? Because we're greedy. Is it us or is it the developers that are greedy? I think everyone's greedy. So, I mean, so there's 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 a couple of models. There's a, the model that we feature from Canberra in the 1970s is a bit more of that 70s all to get, get together and... Patchouli and joysticks and... Get, get the, <laughs> and shovel the tan bark as a group. Uh, but the new model of it, which has come out of Melbourne, that's been architect, the architects have driven, which is called Nightingale, it's the same sort of idea. They do have investors, but what they take out of it's capped. And so all that money goes into better design, better amenities. So you might get a slightly cheaper offering, but you get a much better apartment and the design and the thoughtfulness and the consideration is completely different for what you would pay from a normal developer driven. Mm. And what also causes us issues with the, say, apartment offerings is that they're driven by not just developers but investors. So every apartment's about someone investing in it rather than people wanting getting a, an apartment that you want to live in. The amenity's not quite right. It's not flexible enough. No matter what the outside of them look like, the plan for most apartments everywhere in this country inside is exactly the same. Mm. And so if there is a will and a way, this sort of there's an idea, I think people, if you were talking about housing affordability, if you're prepared to look at different models of banding together with some friends or relatives and taking one house and turning them into two yourself or taking one house and turning them into four apartments, you know, it may work for you. It's a shame that that has to happen. It's a shame that there's not more options out there for these cooperative housing models. 
But ultimately, you know, the sadness is, is that the, what makes housing affordability such a tricky issue is because once people are in, they generally don't care anymore. I feel like this series goes broader than the last. And yes, there are some beautiful private homes in this series, but you also talk about social housing, bush regeneration, remote communities, education. Why are these things more on your mind now as opposed with the previous series? Well, I think, you know, I've, it's a long, I've been banging on about modernist houses for a while and the importance of home, but these things are part of my life now. And uh, I was pretty heavily involved in the battle in Sydney to save some of our social housing with the Sirius building in, in Sydney. So that becomes an important story to tell because I've got skin in the game. I was there and it really worried me and still worries me that Sydney's one of the few cities in the world that doesn't really have any social housing in its CBD and that's a peculiar thing to happen. And potentially even less with the Waterloo Towers yeah. being redeveloped over the next few years. So there's... And who you, I suppose my interest also is is that there's a broad range of people who will need social housing and need social housing today and will need social housing or key worker housing in the future. And we all should be worried that our school teachers, nurses and policemen and women have to be on a train for an hour and a half to come and look after us because they can't afford to live in the city where they work. Yeah, I don't know what they... They call it occupational segregation. This is a, yeah. There's a snappy name for it. If you just join me, uh, Tim Ross is here to discuss his new season of Designing a Legacy on RN Drive. And look, this show is peppered with excellent archive material like The Way We Were kind of feel. It sort of perfect, perfectly elicits that giggle combined with your writing as narration. You know, you open a door and it's funny. So <laughs> it's important that you bring humour to your work, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, no, you know what happens... Everyone, my Sally, my first director, Andrew Garrick that you know, my second director, and even Chris, my latest director, every one of them made me push, put more jokes in because <laughs> I get so earnest about architecture. And they, <laughs> they'll go, yeah, that's good, but we, can we do one that's just a little bit funny, please? And I go, okay, because I get you know, the expectation is, of course, that I'm known for being a comedian and it's it can be confusing for some people, but... I don't know, half the time I do something and it turns up on the telly and I can't even understand where the joke came from. I was just talking to a kid or looking at some. I've got a funny face on or something like that. But I really, I think it's important that we make our TV shows, you know, worthy, but they need to be accessible in some ways. And I was joking with someone today. They was, you know, it constantly comes back and says, what we really like about you, Tim, is that, you know, you have this really accessible language. You know, you make every all these complex ideas seem so simple. You know, that plain everyday language you use. And like, the well, common I, touch. Well, that's me just being, <laughs> it's me at my most highbrow. That's the worst thing about it. I go, well, this is all it comes. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dropping it down a, a level. This is me. So. But you out of anyone I've met understands the true definition of sophistication. That's high and lowbrow together. Because it's not just about understanding the architect's vision. It's understanding about how ordinary Australians see that vision. Don't you agree? Yeah, and I think I sort of, there's a, I think what sort of drives me and what the sense for me is that a lot of the time I've been talking about how we used to do things in the past that were really good and we'd forgotten how to do that. We've forgotten how to value what we, we create and what we make. And there's been a sort of war on the arts in this country and there's been a sort of a war on design in some ways and we've devalued it in, ha in a million different ways. And we've forgotten that making things here and designing things well here are 
was traditionally, you know, since the post-war at least, this idea, say cars for instance, we thought what sort of country can't design and make its own thing? And we turned from a nation of people who used to fix things to a nation of people who buy things off the internet. And that's a huge jump in 20 years. And that's not just because of globalisation. Something else has changed in us in that way. And I, you know, I don't always want to look back and say, oh, it was better then. But it, I think there was there's some moments from the past that we, we can learn from. And then also part of that is, you, oh gosh, it's, you, you're deeply worried about the kids and what sort of environment we're going to live in. And maybe architecture and design has a role in playing a, 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 better, a better life for us. Watching this series, I feel like every new space you present you go, oh, that's my favourite piece of architecture. And then the next one comes. Oh, that, actually, no, that one is my... And it's sort of structured in that nice way. Do you have a favourite in this series? Is I, it the Bichonneau Crab Pot no, Surf Club? No, my favourite is because I've been banging on about this for ages and I really wanted to put it into the series was that I wanted to elevate the humble demountable as a classic piece of Australian architecture. And I know that it makes people scream and I know that when... Everyone says, oh, they were too hot or they were too cold. But the lack of air conditioning made it seem fairly real. Yes, but <laughs> I know. didn't have air conditioning when I was a kid. And I, you know, so. Nor, nor gutters. They, <laughs> they didn't come with gutters. The, one, the school near me, it's just these big boxes with no gutters. There's nothing, there's nothing intentional about a demountable, Tim. But we go, if we go back in time, so what happened? There was the government architect office in the in the mid-1960s in Sydney. They said, well, they had an extra year of education. They got baby boomers. Uh, actual baby boomers and need to go to school. And, th- and what do they do? So they, they need something in a hurry. And Michael Dysart, who we feature in the show, actually uh, who did the Urambi Village in Canberra, the cooperative housing, he also happens to be the guy that designed the demountable, the first version of the demountable. And he, he put this thing together where he said they have to be indestructible, they have to go on the back of a truck, they need to put them on the back of the train. And his final thing to the group of six architects who worked on them was that they have to outlive us. And they and they have apart They've from Michael. Very much have. <laughs> apart from Michael, it's the only one left with us who worked on them. So is he is he proud of that contribution? Yeah, because they solved a problem, and that problem remains to this day. There's not a school in the country, a public school, who knows how many kids are going to turn up on day one, and if you've got 500 kids coming through the door, you, and you need another schoolroom, you can put one on the back of a truck. And in Newcastle, they've got like it's like you know when they get rid of the seven four sevens, and in the in the desert, they've got all these, all the old planes there in America, and that's where they go when they either wait for their new home or when they're done. There's one for demountables in Newcastle, <laughs> so they, that's where they come and go, and the old ones go to retire. And so, I think the elevation of everyday architecture and making people, and you don't have to agree with me on it, but I, it's the question of it: is are we looking at things? as deeply as we can. And it's okay for something that's an everyday piece of architecture to look at it in a different way. And that's what I mean about sophistication. You proved my point beautifully. <laughs> uh, series two of Designing a Legacy is on iView now. Tim Ross, thanks so much for being my Good guest. to see you, Andy. Thanks, mate. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.